Welcome to Franklin and Marshall College's CECL's Research Spotlight, where you can hear stories about how FNM faculty collaborate with the Lancaster, Pennsylvania community to bring theory to practice. CECL, the Center for Sustained Engagement with Lancaster, funds research to create positive change around the natural environment, poverty and social inequality, and with community-based art. I'm Dr. Nancy Curlin, an Associate Professor of Organizational Studies and one of the faculty co-directors. The center was created with the generous funding from the Endeavor Foundation. Each episode will highlight the research of one of our grant recipients. Today we're going to be talking with FNM Professor of Geosciences, Dr. Robert Walter, FNM's Harry W. and Mary B. Huffnagel Professor of Geosciences, Dr. Dorothy Meritz, recently graduated FNM student, Mr. Jevelson Jean, and Senior Associate at Land Studies, Inc., Mr. Justin Spangler, for their project on the Big Spring Run restoration and story map. So welcome everybody, Justin, Bob, Dorothy, and Jevelson. And so we were starting off actually if Bob and, and Dorothy, if the two of you wouldn't mind telling, giving us an overview of the project and where you are with it. Sure, uh, and thanks so much, Nancy, for inviting us to do this. And we wanna extend a great a sense of gratitude to the Center for Sustained Engagement with Lancaster for providing us the C grant to do this. Um, I'll, I'll start out briefly by explaining a little bit of what, you know, the background of Jevelson's uh, project, which is the focus of the seed grant, uh, which is um, sort of the objective was for Jevelson to develop a, a story map uh, about a new restoration design that we implemented way back in 2011, but we're still monitoring the success of this project. And it's at a site called Big Spring Run, which is in central Lancaster County, a little bit south of the city of Lancaster. Now StoryMap is a digital visualization tool that uses geographic information systems that is GIS, uh, mapping technologies combined with traditional storytelling and imagery. And it was, uh, story maps were developed by ESRI, which is uh, the Environmental Systems Research Institute, uh, an international supplier of this GIS software as part of their, what they call ArcGIS software package. So story maps in the last, I'd say four years or so, have become excellent ways to communicate complex geographic data and information to a wide range of individuals and organizations. And so Jevelson's story map was um, this new tool that we use to visualize information. We're applying it to all that we've learned at the Big Spring Run restoration. And so with, uh, you know, Jevelson had been working on this as a part of his uh, research project throughout his senior year and um, has made excellent strides in, in pulling this information together. So um, before I ask uh, Jevelson to chime in here and, and Justin, I'm curious if you could just tell the listening audience what the project is. Tell us about Big Spring Run. Tell us about Legacy Sediment, because I don't think sure. anybody knows about that. Sure, ha happy to. Um, prior to the work that Dorothy and I began uh, back in the early 2000s, um, it was widely assumed that the major contaminants that we're seeing in our streams after storms, which look like they're, they're so laden with sediment, they look like they're running chocolate milk. 
right? And we thought that all of that was coming from upland farm erosion, as well as the nutrients that kind of attach to those particles, nitrogen and phosphorus in particular. And those three, sediment, phosphorus, and nitrogen, are the three big impairments that are causing uh, water quality degradation, not only locally, but within the Chesapeake Bay watershed writ large, and helping to cause massive problems in the Chesapeake Bay itself with a process called eutrophication, which is an overabundance of nutrients that cause these algal blooms, and the algal blooms can cause uh, the bottom waters of the bay to become deoxygenated or anoxic. And this has a tremendous negative feedback loop spiral effect that causes a complete degradation of ecosystems. And so a state and federal agencies for the past 20 plus years have been working feverishly to try to come up with strategies to reduce these sediment and nutrient loads to the, to the bay, focusing primarily on these upland farming type of practices. Uh, Dorothy and I came along with our research beginning in about 2003. Uh, and, and the more the work that we've done locally, the more we realized that, that it was more of a legacy impairment, uh, that much of the sediment load that we were seeing in streams was actually from sediment stored in the valley bottoms over the last 200 to 300 years of farming practices and not contemporary farming practices. And so this was a, a, a huge insight that has led to uh, a new way of restoring streams. And that's where we bring in our community partner of land studies. They, you know, using the primarily the research that we have done, but some of their own observations developed a brand new restoration strategy um, that takes this legacy impairment or legacy sediment as we call it. And I'll let Dorothy explain where that sediment comes from because it's a really important part of the story. But the, the um, the main connection with our community partner land studies was we developed this really wonderful symbiotic relationship where we were doing the science and scientific monitoring and they were doing the restoration. And in 2008, uh, we received uh, collectively both FNM and land studies major grants from the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection to do a restoration experiment based off of the new designs that land studies was coming up with. And by that, we mean that we did three years of pre-restoration scientific monitoring up to about the fall of 2011 when the restoration occurred. And then for the next five years, uh, we uh, did uh, an exhaustive post-restoration monitoring and we compared the pre-restoration to the post-restoration effects. And that way we were able to document the efficiencies of this restoration on providing uh, sediment and nutrient load reductions. And so this is what we're all excited about because those reductions exceeded our expectations uh, in that we deduced that about 80 to 100% of the sediment load was coming from the erosion of these legacy sediment stream banks. And the other th part of the story is that um, the legacy sediments themselves buried a pre-existing wetland ecosystem that existed for thousands of years before the European settlers arrived in, in all the small streams that we've been able to document so far in the watershed, Chesapeake Bay watershed. And what happened was that during, well, I'll let Dorothy continue because it's, an, it's, it's really her studies that have helped to elucidate a lot of this. 
Hi, Dorothy. Hi, Nancy. Hi, others. Um, we were intrigued at the idea that at Big Spring Run, at the site that was restored in 2011, that back in 2003 and four, we could not find a buried stream system. We did trenching, land studies brought in their equipment and dug backhoe trenches for us. We were looking down under all the historic sediments to find out what was there to begin with. What might we restore it back to? We expected to find buried streams and floodplains and so forth. We found buried organic mats, basically, essentially thick mats of organic matter. And a colleague at Johns Hopkins, as well as someone at Penn, uh, Pennsylvania DEP, told us to look at the seeds in them, in those black organic layers. And we did. And we learned about something we had not known about, which is that there are various types of wetlands. And one of those is called a wet meadow. It's similar to a marsh. And that the Big Spring Valley bottom had been a marsh. It didn't have a large stream meandering and carrying sediment. It was just a wet meadow type environment. And, and our trenching showed that clearly, but it took a long time to convince our scientific partners of that. So then the question is, how do you bury a marsh under five feet of mud across the entire valley, valley bottom? How does that even happen? And we began to realize it was dams because we kept finding remnants of old mill dams. And Bob looked at historic maps and then together with him and many other students and collaborators, Mike Ronis in particular from FNM, we compiled these immense GIS databases showing that there were probably over 10,000 dams in Pennsylvania, um, one every one to two kilometers of stream. They were used for water power for various purposes in the 17, 1800s. So it was, it's easy to bury a marsh with a dam because the valley is flooded with water maybe five to 10, sometimes 20 feet deep. And then that valley fills in with fine sediment over a period of decades to centuries. So the whole story came all together and it became clear to us as well as to land studies uh, that restoring such a thing to some kind of stable stream is very challenging. And why not try to restore it back to that wetland system with lots of tiny streams they are called anabranching streams. There are multiple tiny fingertip streams coming in and out together um, and they're, they're lovely environments. They're ecologically fascinating and rich environments. So if you don't mind, I'm gonna uh, jump over to Justin because I wanna hear more about the, how they did the restoration. And then we'll go to Jevelson and he can tell us about how he's uh, representing the project for the story map. So Justin, could you tell us more about the actual restoration project, what you're doing, how long it takes, what happens to the sediment? Where do you, where, where do you take it? Sure. Yeah. So uh, the restoration itself is is centered, uh, and, and the restoration concept itself is centered around the idea that the sediment itself is the impairment. Um, so if we try to remove the impairment, that uh, we're going to, by extension, extend um, some some restore some value back into the and function back into the system. So. Uh, things like hyperreic exchange and uh, denitrification, you know, really complex biogeochemical processes. Um, if you look at the wetland habitats and, and look at um, the species of plants and animals that are on the endangered, threatened and endangered species list, there's so many that come from wetland habitats. Um, and that's because, you know, the, the magnitude of, of sediment deposition in these valley bottoms just push these you know, habitat specialists into these tiny pockets um, that are their habitat dependent plants and animals. And um, so by restoring a lot of that habitat back, you're also restoring the opportunity to be able to give them a chance to, uh, you know, proliferate. So 
Um, with the restoration process, we looked at um, the elevations and and location of, of say basal gravel layers. They're they're the gravel layers that were formed prior to um, you know post glaciation, uh, prior to uh, you know the uh, formation of the legacy sediments. So it kind of had the sandwich where it's the uh, basal gravel layers, and then you have the dark organic set, uh, organic um, material in the historical floodplain, and then you have the thick legacy sediment on top. So we took that off um, and open open the opportunity for that to, to you know enhance itself um, by removing that impairment. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think a lot of that legacy sediment from that particular project actually ended up at F and M. Yeah, it, we liked the, we liked the synergy here. It actually came back full circle. It was, uh, the, the, it was, we removed 22,000 tons of this legacy sediment from a, a length of stream that's only about 3,000 feet or 1,000 meters long. So it's a massive amount of sediment. And it has value, this legacy sediment. It's actually grade A soil that came off the landscape 200 to 300 years ago. It has no contaminants in it, at least in this you know, rural type of setting. And so it actually makes, uh, it's actually a commodity. And as an example of this, we were able to, uh, when the brownfield restoration behind uh, the College Row Apartments was occurring, when they removed this Norfolk Southern Rail Line and turned it into those fields, it's now the football field and a bunch of other fields and things that have been developed back there, they needed topsoil. And so they uh, found out about the soil that we had and they were able to use that. Uh, as part of the topsoil, and you know, it was one of many different sources of that soil. And the con uh, the contractor who did this uh, explained to us how much better our soil was than all the other soil that they could get. So this is just an example that we think that uh, moving forward in the future, that one of the things that we can do, if we can market this properly, and here's where you know someone with your expertise, Nancy, might be really interested in this, we can develop a marketing strategy um, that the cost, the, the sale of that legacy sediment could help to offset the cost of future restoration. And I think this is a real new and interesting avenue for research, collaborative research at some point. Great, so just to make, just so I'm clear, so the Big Spring Run is the one that you have restored, right? And that now you're looking to take this process to other other locations. That's right. That's right. It, it is being done elsewhere. Um, it has been done by land studies, even prior to Big Spring. What was unique about Big Spring was three years of pre-restoration monitoring. So we could determine what's coming into the system, what's going out. So coming in at the upstream end, going out at the downstream end over time, season to season, year to year, how much sediment, how many nutrients, you know, concentrations of nutrients, total loads. And then once restored, what's the change in that? And Bob referred to the, the, the word efficiencies. It's a term used by those trying to do um, reductions of nutrients and sediments. You want to know what's the efficiency of that practice? Is that a good practice? Let's say in comparison to just telling some farmer to do more no-till. I mean, what, how do you compare those two practices on the landscape in terms of their impact on water quality? Thank you. So I'm going to turn it now to Jevelson. And if you can tell us what you're doing with Story Map, and I'll have a link to the Story Map on the blurb for the for the podcast episode. Yeah. So, uh, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. All right? 
Awesome. Yeah. Um, so what I was doing with, with the story map was uh, pretty much taking all the data and report or most of the data reports that uh, Bob and Dorothy made as well as my studies over the past couple of years and um, synthesizing that into a um, kind of uh, a kind of like a document um, where people can go and look at and understand how uh, the stream restoration project uh, was created as well as uh, what's going in, what's going out, and um, like visually see the story of Big Spring Run in an appealing way. Um, so my story map has taken a lot of information that Bob has written, um, and I, I tried to translate that into a way where anyone with um, a, anyone who doesn't have a background in this type of field or research can understand. Um, so that means my cousin, who's probably in eighth grade, might be able to at least get a gist of what is going on in the story map. And um, I, I'm trying to incorporate my artistic abilities and um, creativity into this uh, story map so that people can like see what went on and enjoy learning about the experience run. I think because the, it's a story map, um, which includes a lot of multimedia and information. And it's not just a, uh, a PowerPoint slide or like a book or article because it's a mixture of multimedia and interesting things. It's, um, it'll be a tool people can go to, to learn and actually, you know, kind of enjoy it, not, not sit there and just read like uh, dense information and um, maybe FNM students who are taking an environmental class and maybe in Bob's intro class, they can go to this and see how, uh, how that impacts streams and um, rivers and our environment. And they can you know, learn from something that's practical and uh, has actually happened um, within FNM's history and in the community as well, like FN, uh, the Lancaster community can also um, look at this and see how, what's going on in our community, what's going on in um, the rivers and streams around us and how this project will impact us in the future. Thank you. So I'm going to switch just back to Justin and or Bob to ask you what are some of the challenges you've faced in these restoration projects? You want to go first, Justin? <laughs> yeah, I can, I can go. Um, so yeah, some of, the, some of the challenges that we face and I mean, each project has its own challenge, um, but, but there's kind of a common theme. And one of the biggest challenges is actually awareness. Um, so when, when I talk about awareness, it's, it's not just awareness at, at, at a you know, citizen level or you know, environmentally minded people. Uh, it's also within you know, decision makers, whether they're land managers or landowners or restoration practitioners. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, agencies or um, political entities. So, you know, it's, this is a big nut to crack and, and it's, everyone has some sort of personal experience with streams. So, you know, and people build on that. So whether it's something fun, like childhood play, fishing, hiking, boating, maybe it's something that's, you know, unpleasant, like flooding. Um, but these experiences all kind of roll into how people uh, form their idea of how these systems work. And oftentimes that experience is an incomplete picture. Um, so what, what I really see with this is, this is a great opportunity to, to 
kind of just throw all kinds of, uh, you know, information out there of, of really incredible processes. Like, um, for example, hyperreic exchange, you know, the interaction of surface water and shallow groundwater. There's denitrification, uh, which is a geochemical process, naturally removes nitrogen from the water. You know, the habitat value, especially for endangered species, plants and animals and, and freeze-thaw processes. There's so many pieces that go into it. And, you know, the, the, the sum of all of it is, is what we experience with our streams. So uh, most of my conversations across the spectrum begin with the description of what the impairment is and trying to figure out what the restoration target should be. And oftentimes I find people find the restoration target condition they they visualize something that was perhaps on site 30 years ago or 20 years ago, which was also an impaired condition. So a lot of what we, one of the biggest hurdles with what we do is is an awareness of what did these streams look like, what did these valleys look like, and where do we go from here? Um, so for example, there's you know we live in a developed uh, area. You know this is this is regardless of of where it is, whether it's urban, whether it's agriculture, whether it's forested. This condition happens everywhere, and so if you have this impairment everywhere, um, you're going to have different constraints that are you know a byproduct of that. So in urban areas, we see a lot of utility conflicts, uh, whether it's uh, sewer line or electric or roads. Um, and, and those all have to be part of this conversation of, okay, if you have an impairment and then you have the legacy sediment impairment and you have a constraint, you might not necessarily be able to get back to stage zero, you know, back to what, what the original target value is, um, or it might be a funding issue or something like that. So um, the biggest hurdle we tend to deal with is an overall arching awareness. And then once that awareness is kind of rolled together, that it brings an opportunity for other stakeholders to come to the table and say, wait a second, I, I want to be a part of this too, because we have, we have a vested interest in, in improving, you know, this part of the picture or that part of the picture. Some of our biggest challenges very early on were um, regulatory. They were very fundamental in the sense that regulatory agencies didn't know what to make of this kind of restoration design because it didn't fit into their any known category. And so um, it took a lot of education and documentation and publications uh, to, make, uh, to make it understood by the regulatory agencies that this was indeed a, uh, not just a viable restoration practice, but an, one of the optimal restoration practices. Um, and so you know, that's, that's taken quite a while to get from that, that early, those early days of skepticism to, um, not quite universal, but close to universal acceptance of this kind of restoration practice. And the other challenge, which is always going on, is funding. Uh, these are any kind of restoration is a, is a costly process. And what we've documented, along with Patrick Fleming, a professor in the economics department here at FNM, and primarily his research has shown that the even though that there's a large upfront cost to this kind of legacy sediment removal restoration, that the long-term benefits uh, really go far to outweighing the upfront costs. And it actually makes it in the long-term, this long-term being 15 to 20 years, it's, one, it's the most cost-effective restoration approach out there in terms of bang for the buck. 
And so uh, that's other that's information that's relatively new, sort of hot off the press in the last couple of years. And it's something that we want to get out in Jevelson's story map to a broader community, because we think once that kind of information gets out, um, it'll really help to set the stage for more restoration. I just wanted to add about the, the regulatory uh, component that, that Bob had mentioned. Um, in fairness, you know, this uh, legacy sediment restoration, uh, floodplain restoration, was a, it, it was a novel approach um, when we first uh, kind of embarked on this journey. So um, with a novel approach, um, trying to fit a novel approach into a, an established uh, set of regulations that, that were written without considering what that, you know, something that didn't exist prior to, to the regulations. Um, it really took a lot of trying to cipher out how it fit into the big picture. Um, the other thing, too, is that the regulatory agencies, they need, um, you know, information and publications and, and data to be able to support um, a decision on a process um, so that they can say, yes, this is in the best interest of the public that, um, you know, they're going to impact this water resource. Uh, with the goal of trying to actually expand the resource into a, a, a larger, a larger wetland complex, a larger, you know, and all the benefits that come with it. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of roll that into the awareness hurdle too. Is that, you know, the the regulatory environment is starting to um, accept the this as a, a process and and understand the the magnitude of benefits that come with it now too. So I have three questions. One, uh, how is it novel? And you may have said this, but if you wouldn't mind telling me again, and what is the size of the problem in Lancaster County? And then third, based on what you're talking in terms of regulatory implications, what are the policy implications? So how is it novel? What is the size of the problem? And what are the policy implications? But uh, just yeah. if you're good at you're perfectly positioned to talk about how why it's novel because you know about the other restoration practices that are out there. Sure. Um, so uh, yeah, I mentioned that it's a novel process, um, you know, and and you know this is something that we've been going through for the last twenty years, really, um, trying to trying to generate the information and figure out what are the critical uh, critical components and design criteria for this. Um, and it takes some iterations and it takes some feedback. And that, that's one thing that's been really great about the relationship between land studies and Franklin and Marshall is that it's a really tight feedback loop and that, you know, we can design, we can do an assessment and design, permit the project, construct it, and then watch it. And we have feedback on, on the performance of the project. And we can roll that information back into the next design of the next uh, project that's going out there. Um, it was a novel approach in that, um, stream restoration, there, there's really only one other um, opportunity at, the, at that time, which was natural channel design, um, when, this, when we first started rolling into this. And, and that looks at uh, stream restoration as, uh, uh, from a different perspective. It's, it's a lot of uh, dimension pattern and profile, and uh, it, it basically seeks to replicate a condition of a stable reach from one location and replicate those dimensions and patterns and profiles of that channel on the, the site that's impaired. Uh, the problem with that, is, and that kind of rolls into your second question is, you know, what's the extent of this problem? And the extent of this problem is enormous. Um, when you start to understand what legacy sediment looks like in the field, um, it's, it's everywhere. 
um, particularly in Lancaster, you know, it was right in that sweet spot where uh, there was a tremendous amount of economic pressure back in the 17, early 1800s, where um, the economic pressure for mills and agriculture and industry to perform uh, was really dependent on water power. Um, so it was right in that sweet spot. It was rapidly developed right in that area. Uh, so you're left with these massive deposits of sediment throughout, you know, the whole region, really. Um, and it, it doesn't stop at Lancaster. Um, it's I've seen it throughout Pennsylvania, as well as northern tier of Pennsylvania, which did have some glacial activity. But um, the only difference between, you know, the areas up there and the glacial areas and, and this here is that um, we didn't have glacial till. Um, so that's one less layer of confusion in the whole in the whole big picture. Um, there's still legacy sediments up in the northern area of Pennsylvania, uh, New York. Um, I've seen it down in uh, Maryland, all over Maryland, all over uh, North Carolina. So, you know, it's it's definitely something that needs to be considered not only regionally, um, but uh, I think Bob and Dorothy have some some other information coming out that actually goes far, <laughs> casts a net far wider than the United States, um, which is kind of interesting to hear. If I could just follow up on on uh, what Justin was saying about the difference in restorations is that um, it's really a difference in looking at the mechanism of the impairment. The, uh, the original rest stream restoration designs were basically based on trying to protect or armor the banks from eroding. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Justin said the, the right phrase, he, he called you know, these, this, these banks or legacy sediments were the impairments themselves. And that wasn't recognized until our work came along to show that that sediment shouldn't be there in the first place. There's no, there's no point in protecting it because it shouldn't be there. Plus protecting it is a futile activity. Uh, and, and Dorothy's work has shown that because the mechanism for this impairment it means that any time you try to armor those banks, it's going to fail. Just by the, the, the nature of, of the stream dynamics and, how, and the reason why the sediments are there in the first place and why these streams have evolved the way that they are, they have. And so um, it really goes back to very fundamental difference to how we're looking at the landscape with this novel restoration approach, recognizing that the target for our restoration. And so every stream restoration kind of has a target. And prior to our work, they would try to find what they thought was a, an undisturbed stream, which is almost impossible to find and use that as a reference. The way our approach is that the reference is actually buried underneath the legacy sediment. It's that wetland ecosystem that Dorothy referred to. And if we remove that legacy sediment and give that buried wetland an opportunity to rehabilitate. And we help it along by planting uh, wetland plants that are based off of the seed library, essentially, that we have in that buried, uh, buried wetland ecosystem, that that would be a more profound restoration practice than trying to you know, futilely armor these banks. Um, and you know, Justin can go into a lot more detail about the, the pros and cons of, of different restoration designs, but I think that's kind of the nutshell of it. So what are the policy implications then? Well, the, the policy implications are um, 
they're enormous. And I don't mean that glibly because you know, Justin mentioned that, that this is a widespread problem, not just in Lancaster County, um, but throughout the Chesapeake Bay region and, and beyond. And so the, the reason that DEP gave us the funding, awarded us the funding to do this restoration experiment was to demonstrate these efficiencies that we talked about, how much sediment and nutrients are reduced by this process. And once they got those numbers, they could present this information to the US Environmental Protection Agency with a recommendation for a new, quote, best management practice or BMP for short, which means that, that restoration practitioners can now use this design and, and use the data that we collected at Big Spring Run uh, as a way of documenting what the efficiencies of the sediment and nutrient loads would be if they applied this approach. So it, it has, has profound policy implications beyond our little experiment. I, I think one thing that's really interesting about all of this is that um, I see policy that tends to point fingers at certain sectors of industry. Um, and, and, you know, people get really entrenched in trying to demonize one sector, sector over another. And what is really interesting about this is that I kind of look at it more at, from a perspective of, you know, we, we talk about how we need to be good stewards of the earth so that we can, you know, pass, you know, a good, healthy earth to our children. And if we flip that, we are the children who inherited this problem from our, the people who were here prior to us. So the issue that I look at from a perspective of there's no one to demonize here. We have all inherited an issue um, as a result of, you know, living here. And, and this is the issue. So now how are we going to deal with it collectively? So I just wanted to throw that out there because it's, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting, you know, how widespread all of it is and how it fits together. There is no finger pointing anymore. It's just, here's the issue and we just have to deal with it. I like that. We are the children who inherited. I like that. Okay. So then what are the next steps now for all of you? Uh, next steps. This is very timely, Nancy, because just last evening, we found out that we were awarded the R.K. Mellon Foundation grant that we applied for that you wrote a letter of support for. Congratulations. Uh, $1.25 million for three years. Wow. Uh, wow. For, applause, for, uh, applause. Dorothy and, and myself and Patrick to sort of lead an effort modeled off of the uh, Center for Sustained Engagement with Lancaster seed grant concept is that um, we have money in there for other faculty members at f and and at other academic institutions to do uh, research related to this, to this issue. Um, so it's, the, the, this seed grant has been a real important springboard for this larger, larger grant recognized by the Mellon Foundation as something that they want to get into. They, they were mainly based in Western Pennsylvania and had funded mostly Western PA projects. And, and recently they started an effort to get into the Chesapeake Bay watershed and water quality issues. So it really opened the door uh, for this. It's three years of funding, as I mentioned. Um, and so we're really looking to, um, there's like four main 
outcomes that we want to see develop out of this. And uh, we want to develop a, um, a certificate program at FNM that's based off of our core strengths of stream restoration science and engineering and economics and public policy. Uh, with our partners at Land Studies bringing in the engineering component of it. Um, and through this, we can enhance the undergraduate educational experience through authentic research opportunities. Um, we really want to engage community partners and land managers through targeted outreach programs based on our research findings. Um, things that we've begun to do that help us help landowners understand the, the sense and scope of the impairment, which is often a really good way to get them engaged in understanding that, that this impairment affects them as well as their neighbors. And the other is we want to transform uh, community perceptions about uh, the sort of from scientific and economic and, and social issues related to environmental problems. And really think this is an opportunity for us to engage with the local Lancaster community, especially opportunities for underrepresented groups to get involved in applied research related to environmental activities. And so that was the scope that we laid out to the Mellon Foundation, and they seemed to like it. That's great. Congratulations. Thanks. Other thoughts from the rest of you? Next steps or final thoughts? Um, I think I'll oh, go ahead, Jefferson. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would just say, um, well, first, congratulations, Bob. That's it's amazing. It makes me so happy to hear like all this hard work is paying off. Um, and I, for the next steps, um, I guess for me is actually completing the story map and um, you know finding that energy um, to to move forward. I, I just graduated, so I'm kind of burnt out, but. Uh, <laughs> I think if I can, you know, just tread on a little longer, it, it'll it'll turn out great. So, um, so I'm gonna put a lot of effort and energy into uh, finishing strong. Um, that's that's just my next steps. But I'll I'll let Justin go. Congratulations, yeah, Jefferson, on graduating. Thank you, Justin. I think it's uh, I think it's great what he's putting together. It, uh, we saw the, you know, a, a draft of the product earlier this week, and it it looks great, and it's it's fantastic. Uh, it's going to be a great tool to to be able to communicate the awareness, uh, you know, throughout the community. Kind of uh, take the take the uh, fundamental discussion to another level. So uh, he's he's done a great job. Thank you, Dor Dorothy. Any final words? Yes, I want to bring it back a bit with a, a circle here, um, linking students over time. Back in about 2013 roughly two years after the restoration had been completed at Big Spring, I had a group of students out there in a on a class project. And um, one of the students, Kayla Schulte, was standing looking about at the end of the trip and said, it's so beautiful. She put her arms up in the air and she said, what are you and Bob and the other collaborators doing to tell the world about this? And I replied that, um, of course we would publish scientific papers. And she looked a bit disappointed. She said, but what about those who aren't reading those scientific papers? And that then led to her staying with us for a year or two after she graduated. She was a fantastic student at FNM and an amazing writer and tremendous technical skills with technology. She stayed and created the Big Spring Run website. At this point in time, 
although the website is still quite valuable and it is really well done by Kayla, full of creativity and great examples and original artwork that she made. At this point in time though, we actually need a story map. Um, it is a newer technology, it does different things and we need another student, former student like her to help create that story map, that's Jebelson in this case, because students have eyes that, for things that we don't. They see things we don't. And they can tell people things that we might not even have realized were the, the right way to tell it or the most interesting parts of the story. We're wrapped up in the science of it. So it's just great to see this being passed along from one former student to another and, and getting out to the world and answering Kayla's question, you know, what are you doing to tell the world about this amazingly beautiful restoration site? <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm going to end on that note. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, Nancy. Appreciate the, uh, the time. Bye, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to Franklin and Marshall College's CECL's Research Spotlight. Every episode, we're going to highlight how FNM faculty collaborate with the Lancaster, Pennsylvania community to bring theory to practice. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can learn more about the center at www.fandm.edu backslash C-S-E-W-L. Thank you for listening.